If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, the podcast where we discuss everyone's favorite topic, venture capital. Yeah! I'm here this week with my co-host, Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief, Alex Wilhelm. Alex, welcome to the new studio. What are your first impressions? Uh, Y'all need to finish unpacking. (laughs) No, you can't see this on the recording, but um, we are in a very beautiful rectangle-ish room with lots of soundproofing and lights and boxes of camera equipment. So eventually, we will uh, live tape this show on video and put it on Facebook Live. And I oh, just made we? that up, so we might not. <laughs> but anyways, the point is, it's a great space, and I'm uh, glad to be here. Yeah, it's nothing glamorous, but it does the job. Yeah, I mean, it's, okay, compared to the last room we were podcasting in, this is like Versailles. That's a good point. Yeah. All right, well, we got a lot, of talk about, a lot to talk about this week, so let me just jump in, and let's do a quick rapid fire of some of the big deals of the week and also some of the big M&A transactions. I'm starting off with the most recent, which is news that... Thumbtack, which is a online marketplace for easy to do, simple neighborhood jobs, they are raising up to 120 million um, in Series H funding. So we're getting, we're making That's our way through the alphabet deep. here. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is this is the type of round you do. It's a super late stage round. Uh, and now is the valuation going up as part of the transaction? No. So um, according to Delaware stock filings, um, they are raising at a flat valuation. So they are selling the shares at the same roughly $8 share price that they sold their Series G shares in 2015. So that's that's, a long time that's not only 4 years ago, yeah. Um so that's bad news um on a few counts like given the fact that it's been so many years and they are not seeing a premium. Um you know it also kind of uh, suggests that their investors uh, are not confident in the prospects of Thumbtack. So um, a couple of interesting details, I'll be fast, is that um, Thumbtack, according to sources, uh, was looking for an acquirer and did not succeed. So they turned back to their investors, and that's why we're seeing the flat valuation. So we'll see. Um, this is not a, a closed round. Um, this filing suggests they're in the, you know, they've authorized it. So we'll see. One more note there. Like, yeah. you know, it's not that no investors have no confidence. I mean, if you can raise $120 million, people still believe in you. But maybe the optimism about short term returns has been tempered by. I think what we completely call market realities. Absolutely. And one of the sources did say that they were pretty shocked that Thumbtack was raising that much. Anyway, let's move on. Um, sure. Did you see news about the bird and scoot? So, deal? yes, I did. This is a scoop that you and I think Ingrid yes. over at TC had. And my first impression was about time. Yeah, I think we all thought there'd be a lot more cons- consolidation and MA activity in the scooter space, given that there were so many players and then you know a few really large players and then several maybe even a dozen smaller startups but i think this may be um aside from lyft's acquisition of motivate and uber's acquisition of jump bikes this would be the first scooter m&a transaction well it's the first m&a transaction that's been kind of put together by bird or lime the two leading american and also in some ways global scooter players and the two most famous ones in the space the first two scooter corns uh back in the day uh now scoot Kate, it's not the biggest company in the world, but Scoot is the one that also does the little electric mopeds. Exactly. Yeah, yes. I think um, you know, I think a lot of us here in San Francisco are familiar with Scoot because of the mopeds, and and because Scoot is one of two companies, Skip and Scoot, say that three times fast, that actually got a permit to operate in SF. Yes. So um, companies like Bird and Lime, which are uh, you know the most popular brands in the space weren't able to get permits. I think that's because of the way that they entered the market, which was kind of like a we don't care about the rules. Here we are. We don't need your permits. Whereas 
Skip and Scoot were a little bit nicer in their approach and kind of went about it um, in a rule-abiding way. Yes, but if you're Bird and you did not follow the rules and you don't currently have access to the SF market and someone else does and they're smaller than you and you have both cash and stock, what can you do? Well, you can buy them. And then all of a sudden you have access to your home market. And that was a lot of the reaction I received from that story was like, oh, haha, look at Bird just paying however much. I mean, we don't know the price of the deal just to get their way into the SF market, which is a big market, but is it worth, you know, the the tens of millions that they're going to pay. People pay a lot of money for stuff around their hometown. You know, people do care a lot about geographic proximity. And, you know, I, I'd wager you that it's probably going to be a lot of stock. I don't think they're going to be shelling out 50 million in cash for this deal, whatever it ends up being worth, because Bird consumes a lot of cash. And they haven't seen their valuation go up uh, as much as they would like in their last couple of funding rounds anyways. So probably cash is a premium, stock is free to go. And so... Yeah, it is a little interesting. So Bird's last valuation was $2.3 billion, But... I, in researching for the story, I was not able to find anywhere the exact amount of money they raised in that last round. And I, they have closed the rounds. Closed. They said they confirmed. But there's just no evidence of what exactly it was. Their story saying it's $400 million, Their story saying it's $220 million. Like, it's just no idea. I have a hypothesis that in that situation, the lowest number is going to be closest to the truth. Fair enough. Yeah. But if it was 220 at a 2.3, how long ago was that now? It was some time. I mean, I think it news initially on, on that round broke around... A year ago this time. It's one of those rounds where there were a lot of stories, there was a lot of conjecturing, there was a lot of anecdotes, and there wasn't a lot of facts. Okay, fair enough. But I mean, my point is, I doubt they had that much of that money left. Yeah, you know, a year ago, given their enormous capex with scooters, scooter development, scooter deployment, how much of that 220 is going to be sitting in the bank account? Probably not a lot. So I'm presuming the scoot deal will be stock. Ergo, the actual purchase price of getting their home market back isn't like they're going to sell their left leg. They're just going to promise off part of their future. So, uh, moving on, Google is buying Looker for $2.6 billion. And this morning I saw this news, I nodded my head and went, sweet, what's that? And it turns out, Kate, that Looker is uh, having to do with things in the cloud. And as we all know, Google is competing with both Microsoft's Azure and AWS's, uh, Amazon's AWS cloud platform. That's my entire take on this deal. It's cool. Look at that. I got nothing to add. Okay, cool. Moving on. Uh, Mirror, everyone's favorite meme that's actually a startup, is raising between 30 and $40 million, we think, at a valuation of about 300 And Kate, is that pre or post money? Do we know? I believe it's post money. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd been chasing this down for a while, trying to figure out what was going on because I'd heard they were raising. Um, actually, I'd similarly heard they were raising at a flat valuation, but according to the filings that I eventually got, they're not raising at a flat valuation. They've actually seen a quite a nice premium from 200 million to 300 million valuation. Um, and this is in a very short time period since Mirror actually released their first product, which, for those of you that aren't familiar, it is a mirror that doubles as an interactive home gym. Like That's a not portal, a joke. Kind That's of. a thing. Yep. Yeah, so when you're not using it, it's straight up a mirror. And when you are using it, you can see yourself and there's like a nice AI coach who can help you work out better. Yep, a couple of things. One, this sounds kind of ridiculous. I actually think it's kind of cool. I think that we're seeing startups draft on the back of Peloton success, and we'll get to the more of that later on. Uh, and also, don't forget that a $300 million valuation is huge. I know in like today's era of like Uber, $120 billion or $90 billion, we get kind of lost in the stratosphere. $300 million up from $200 million is an enormous success. That shows a yeah. lot of confidence on behalf of investors. It's great for the company. Not to be sniffed at, even though it's not you know, the top of the pyramid. Yeah, I mean, I think VCs are looking at Mirror um, perhaps as one of the next big things in fitness tech, especially you know, given the massive success of Peloton, which actually um, you know, went through a long period where people kind of thought, that it was BS and that no one would want to not only buy a Peloton for three grand or however yep. much, 
but then continue to pay a monthly fee in order to actually experience the content, which is really the upside of actually purchasing a product like a mirror or a Peloton. Yeah, people didn't uh, fully understand or grasp the TAM that is the yuppie market today. Um, but I think the existence of Blue Bottle as a franchise indicates that Peloton would, in fact, actually sell well in the market. Uh, and if you were a Twitter user, pretty much you're just looking at the Peloton um, demographic right there. So speaking of which, though, I'm going to throw it to you. The big news out this week from Big Bike is that Peloton has announced publicly that it has filed privately to go public. Unfortunately, there's not much else to say because when you file confidentially, we don't have access to that S1 filing. Um, eventually, Peloton will reveal that. We don't know when that's going to be. So it's a matter of just sitting tight and knowing the IPO will happen in 2019, but just not exactly when. Yeah. And uh, this is an IPO that we've been waiting for for some time. We have been expecting it. Um, and it's going to have two main components that we're going to dig into. First off, is the hardware side of the business. How much gross margin do they drive, if any, off the bikes themselves? There are costs with development and production and shipping and installation and so forth. And then also, what is the margin like on the subscription side of the business, which is that $40 a month, give or take, people pay. And uh, the hybrid of those will determine the valuation and uh, we'll see a lot of fun things like, is it valued as a pure software business or is it valued as a hybrid hardware and software company? Yeah, and I think it'll be valued as hybrid. Um, I also think when we get the S1, we're going to see a lot of their forward-looking, I guess, ambition of really focusing more on the media element of Peloton because, you know, a lot of that is original content, like in the sense that Netflix is original content because, I mean, Peloton is creating so much original fitness content um, and I think that they are going to focus a lot of their efforts in the future on that side of the business. Yeah, here's a question. While you were saying that, I had a thought. You know, fitness content doesn't go stale quickly, right? Presumably a bike class that you record, you can keep for five years and, and keep reusing. So it probably has a pretty long shelf life. So, Well, on one hand, yes. But on another hand, Fit Peloton users are, many of them are very committed to the individual instructors and they're uh, watching each, I each ep- I don't know what you would call it, but I want to call it an episode. Session? Yeah, a session. And they're treating it like an episode. Like, would you want to rewatch the same episode of your favorite show? I mean, sure, maybe a couple times, but you don't want to keep watching the same episode forever. So maybe no is, is your point then. So yeah. maybe they have higher content costs than we might expect, and that could actually lower the margin of uh, the subscription business. I was trying to paint the bull case, but after that, I'll, I'll dial it back in. Um, but as you can tell, we're excited about this one because so many question marks. This is not just another B2B enterprise SaaS company that we can kind of guess the numbers from a distance. I have absolutely no idea what we're going to see. Yeah, I mean, this is not like any other IPO that I've covered in my time reporting on tech. I think there will be one of the most um, exciting and interesting IPOs to cover. Uh, you know, it's it's it is like a consumer company. It's also a hardware company. You know, it's a media company. It's a software company. It has so many different. It's um, a bird. It's so a the, plane. Yeah, it's a it's the intersection of so many different spaces that are all. Um, you know, it's also a subscription business. It's mm-hmm. just it's everything. Yeah, I mean, and that's why uh, you know if we're not like bleeding or have broken legs, there will be an extra episode of Equity when that drops uh, because that's going to be hella yep. fun. Uh, I think that's about it. Oh, one more thing. We just talked about Mirror and the valuations of the Peloton effect. As with every IPO, if Peloton stumbles and the numbers are bad, that will impact valuations down the chain. And so companies like Mirror are hoping for Peloton to do well, improve the market size and the demand and all that good stuff. So that's the context for startups out there. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. Uh, Moving along, I want to talk about the Vision Fund, which, honestly, we haven't had on the show that much in the last couple of months. I feel like it's kind of fallen off as a topic. And uh, maybe that's because they're running low on money, or maybe we just stopped caring. 
But uh, there's some speculation for, gosh, about as long as there's been one Envision fund that there will be a second and a third. And this has been stoked by comments from uh, Masharoshi himself and also kind of the media landscape that surrounds the, the hype of the Vision fund and its market uh, impact. There are recent reports that that might not happen, or at least that the Vision Fund 2, if it does come to exist, might be smaller. Some cornerstone investors that help power Vision Fund 1 are reticent to pony up um, as much cash or any into the second fund. And the, the context for this is that I heard from someone that I thought was quite smart back when the Vision Fund was first put together, that if it could show anything like a positive or respectable return, money was going to fly off the sidelines from sovereign wealth funds and power multiple of these around the world. Um, that person apparently had too much espresso that day because it is not proven true. Uh, but my question then becomes, if there is no vision fund to, does capital that might have gone into it still find a way into the startup market, therefore ameliorating the effect of no vision fund to? Or does that money not show up at all, and the late stage market all of a sudden has its biggest benefactor kind of ripped out from underneath it? And that's, that's kind of where I'm, I'm torn as I look at this. Yeah, I think if there's no vision fund to, I mean, a lot of the damage, or I guess, influence that the Vision Fund 1 had on the market, um, that's still there. That influence, you know, It's already influenced so much of deal sizes and valuations. Yeah. And I think that's, a, um, you know, there's no going back. But I think if there is no, if there's no new $100 billion fund, I mean, let's, the Vision Fund 1 was a $98 billion fund, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, so without the presence of such a monstrous fund, yeah, I think things have to change because there was a point in 2018 where the Vision Fund was making just deal after deal after deal after deal. It was and a machine had, gun fire, six exactly. uh, nine-figure rounds. Exactly. But I think without that, we will see, um, you know, we'll see changes in the late shade market. But at the same time, I had read that Vision Fund 2 might focus more on deal sizes in the range of $50 million. Had you seen that? I mean, maybe. But, I mean, then is it really the Vision Fund or is, like, the Vision Fund's crappy little cousin? Like, I mean, the whole point of the Vision Fund is that it... Um, we can't swear on the show to dying. Uh, it gave no Fs about what we would call like logical progression of deal size, of valuation increases, uh, of like not investing in competitors. It just was wiling out. And that was what made it different. If it's just another late stage fund that makes relatively conservative bets, whatever. I mean, well, whatever, what in the sense that you'll be bored covering it? No, I don't think it'll have the same impact. I mean, the division fund walked in and single-handedly created market froth and hype and pushed a lot of companies to think bigger, maybe stupidly so, than they would have otherwise. If we're just going to have another IVP in the market, that, that'll still be a change, one, and it'll be a, a shift in, 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 I think, sentiment at a lot of late-stage companies that were expecting to have enough capital available, they never had to go public. Yeah, but I don't think the Vision Fund was a net positive. I mean, there are a lot of things the Vision Fund did that may have screwed a lot of companies. Like, we've talked about this on many occasions, but they gave so much money to companies like Brandless, and was it, it's WAG, right? Or is WAG. It, yeah, and those companies, you know, given how young they were and the fact that they hadn't raised, you know, that much before that, a lot of people questions whether question whether they were able to spend that cash in a way that benefited their business or if it actually dragged them down. I don't think we're going to know that you know for a while, but True. I think that um, when you say oh just another IVP, well firms like IVP are seemingly more strategic and focused in their bets and working with companies who sometimes they can per- potentially offer their services for mm-hmm. 
Whereas the Vision Fund, it did seem like a little bit of a spray and pray mentality at times. Right. It's like if you sit at a blackjack table in Vegas, there's like the guy to your left who can actually count cards, IVP. And then there's the drunk dude with a Hawaiian shirt that's unbuttoned down to his navel, Vision Fund. If you don't (laughs) have that guy and you replace him with another dude who counts cards, it's going to change. There'll still be money at the table, but the sentiment will be different and the climate will change. Mm -hmm. And if the climate changes in in a, you know not emotionally driven, but sentiment driven business like private capital and private investing is, that will change things. I think the TLDR here is if the vision fund doesn't raise a vision fund too, we will feel changes in the market. I think we will see deal sizes come back to earth a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think we may see um, at least not increasingly large valuations. Because I think the people may, especially now that it's been a couple years, people may underestimate the force that is the vision fund. We don't have the vision fund, you know, that obvious force that you'll feel the dark cloud is gone yes a um, couple of quick notes about why this might be it isn't just that people like kate and i think this way i mean there's been structural problems with the vision fund there's been some discussions about opacity and how it operates how its decisions are made um and i would throw in there there's probably some questions about the prices it's paying uber uh managed to claw back above its ipo price uh for a hot second and then it's back under it today um and didn't qual- last long didn't last <laughs> nope um, people are concerned about WeWork's valuation or the We company's valuation. Uh, these are two companies that the Vision Fund put a lot of money into, and perhaps people are are less confident in its ability to pick winners uh, and undervalued assets that will then appreciate. Maybe. Um, but the point is, what seemed to be a pretty likely occurrence is now seemingly less likely, and that's a big thing to pay attention to. If you are working for a late-stage company, you might want to hire an IPO lawyer and start talking to them because you might not be able to raise infinite money. Um, let's move on, though, to uh, something a little bit earlier in the stages. And, well, it's more of a metamorphosis, if you will. Um, the caterpillar has become the butterfly, and social capital is now tribe, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, it's not as simple as a rebranding. Um, social capital, as you guys probably know, transitioned into being kind of like a family fund about nine months ago. It's kind of a long story, so I'm not going to go into that, but it no longer exists as a venture capital fund. But a bunch of its early-stage investors have decided to launch what is essentially Social Capital 2.0, known as Tribe Capital. And it is a fund made up of seven former investors and operators at Social Capital. They've invested in a bunch of Social Capital portfolio companies. Like I said, they've hired a bunch of former Social Capital employees, and they are operating um, with the exact same proprietary software platform that Social Capital used in its data-driven investing days, which is called the Magic 8-Ball. The Magic 8-Ball is Mm -hmm. the name of their data-driven platform. Exactly. So it's a tool for dual diligence to, sorry, due diligence for investing in startups. They're relying heavily on data, but it's not an exclusively data-driven strategy, meaning they don't plug data into a into AI, into an AI platform and have it spit out whether or not they should invest. They just inform their investment decisions with this data platform, which is called the Magic 8-Ball, which is a very venture capital thing. For it's a very venture capital. It, it's yeah. like, it's because it's, it's the opposite of what it is. A Magic 8-Ball is a random number generator that gives you a wrong answer, and presumably this platform helps you make a good decision. Uh, do you know how it works in any capacity? Does it generate like ratios in the SaaS market that help you understand efficiency, or does it do things that are more exotic that we might not There's understand? There's a lot of so Jonathan, um, who's, who's a former partner at Social Capital and who's leading this effort at Tribe, um, he wrote a very extensive, detailed blog post on this. So if you want to know what the, the details, I would I would go there. We but, will, we'll link that in the post uh, on TechCrunch yes, for this episode. Yes, we can do that. Okay. Um, but uh, I will say, you know, they, because they're working with early stage startups, they're not able to have the luxury of looking at their financials. So they're plugging in data, like you mentioned, their industry data um, on other um, 
on potentially competing businesses. And the goal is for them to be able to determine early and rapidly whether a company has product market fit and whether it has a strong growth trajectory. So, yeah. Because of the early stage, product market fit is the thing you want as opposed to, you know, strong unit economics or whatever you look for in a later stage business. Right. But the thing is about this fund, it's a little complicated because they're, they're raising $150 million. And given the fact that they've already invested in late stage businesses like Carta, um, they they clearly are not focused only on the early stage. So it kind of seems to me like they're they're going after the best companies, whether that's a seed stage business or whether that's a Series D <laughs> yeah. business. That's that's a range. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with seven with seven people working on it, they probably have enough eyeballs to kind of keep tabs on many many things. Well, that's the benefit of having a data platform, though, is that they, their goal is to have this platform, you know, look over one thousand companies a year and then help them to not have to look at a thousand companies per year. So what do they do in the meantime? Well, they look closer at the companies they're considering. I was, I was kidding. I, was, I think it's cool. Serious business, Alex. I, well, everything's serious business. The venture capital world is known for being very serious. Um, Indeed. I want to grab a quote there from your story that caught some attention. Um, you were a quote from Chamonth, sorry, um, talking about the new guys who are part of Tribe. He said, quote, those guys did a very good job working for me. And the quote goes on, but this was flagged to me by someone uh, in my Twitter DMs as like, hmm. And you said before the show that the tone of that comment uh, wasn't as dismissive as it reads in print. And I wanted to kind of give us a chance to clear the air on that. Yeah. So I chatted with um, Chamath and, you know, that was the statement he gave on what Tribe Capital is doing. In short, he said he was proud of them for going off on their own. He said that when he went off on his own to build social capital, you know, it was an amazing experience for him. And I, I know I said I wouldn't go into the social capital thing, but what had happened is Chamath one day decided that he didn't want to do venture capital anymore because he wanted better returns and he wasn't seeing the returns that he wanted. Um, and, and, you know, he made a call that was pretty bold and also a little bit like, yikes, I mean, those people are VCs and they no longer work at a VC fund. Like, yeah. they all have to get lost. And they did. They all moved on. And that's why I thought this story was interesting is, of course, you have VC firms fall apart, people move on. But not so often do you have a few partners rebuild a firm that is in the exact image of the firm that they spent several years at. It feels like a reconstitution, essentially. Yeah. And in the, in the, you know, the quote that ends my story, one of the partners is, he's like, yeah, well, we all had job offers. So why did we get back together? Uh, well, you know, we spent years building this thing and like we still wanted to build it. So it makes absolute sense. And yeah. I think I recommend anyone go read that story because I think it's an interesting venture capital tale. And as always, there will be a link in the uh, podcast piece uh, attached to this uh, very audio recording. All right, so this is a tough transition, so I'm just going to do it. Go um, for it. There has been a ton of female-founded companies entering the Unicorn Club in 2019. Yeah, so if you think back to this show, gosh, I don't know, four, six, eight, ten weeks ago, there were two new female-founded companies that reached unicorn status on the same day. It may have been like Glossier and FabFitFun or something like that. It was two of them. And we went, uh, darn, two in one week. Isn't that impressive what it changed from the pace that we used to see? And so we did a little work on that and found out that there were 12 uh, female-founded companies that or that have at least one female founder that reached unicorn status in 2018. And there have been 10 so far in 2019. And we are, as you know, about halfway through the year. And so we are on pace, if more of this keeps happening, for the largest number of known female-founded companies reaching unicorn status in one year. Now, is it 
a large percentage of the total, not as high as it should be, but certainly it's progress of a sort and an encouraging note, I think, to hear out in the market. Definitely. I think a few things are happening. Um, so what we've talked about in the past and one of the biggest issues when it comes to funding female founders is that there's a really big hole in the market when it comes to late stage rounds for these businesses. So female founders, um, you know, according to data, are able to raise seed, round, seed rounds. They're able to raise, raise Series A rounds. But as you work your way up that ladder... Um, it becomes increasingly difficult for female founders, again, according to data, to close rounds. So I think what we're what we're seeing, which is really great, is a trend in which female founders are having an, um, an easier time closing these Series D, these Series D rounds. And what we're going to start seeing is um, an influx of female-founded IPOs. And there's still have been so few. I think, you know, that's the reason when when um, Katrina Lake took Stitch Fix public, it was this huge moment because you just never it was so rare to see a woman you know yeah. like ringing in I don't know was that a NASDAQ or a New York Stock Exchange one of the two but yeah. doing the bell ringing ceremony the famous kind of ticker tape moment you get right exactly so I'm really excited uh, I think we will you know rent the runway sorry not rent the runway um, the real rail just filed to go public they did and they are female um, founded and female led did you read that at S1 um, I looked at it yeah. I uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we can talk about it some other time but yeah. that it wasn't. It wasn't uh, thrilling to look at. So I just. It, yeah, some, it's, it's a small business. They have fifty million in revenue annual, right? It's actually bigger than that. They had just under seventy million in revenue in the first quarter of this year. I think the thing that that caught me was a growth question, or it was a profitability question. What there's something in there kind of tripped me up. It's not a a SaaS business, but like eighty percent gross margins and so forth. But um, it's just awesome to see, and and I'm really excited to see more female-founded companies go public uh, this year and hopefully in the future. Definitely. I mean, I'm always excited about female founders. Uh, it's good that there's good news. You know, it's better than just saying, hey, there's one. Finally, it's more like there's a there's a class, a cohort, kind of a cadre of these companies moving forward. Um, so shout out to companies like FabFitFun, Glossier, uh, Confluent Away, Airwellx, Rent the Runway, and so forth. Um, to close off today, though, we actually have a bit of a request to all of you listening out there, which is that, as you may have seen from our tweets, we are planning out our summer, not season but just set of shows and we are kind of hoping to bring some new faces on as guests especially um underrepresented vcs and so i don't okay why don't you tell people what we're hoping to get yeah so unfortunately we don't have founders on equity equity is a venture capital focused podcast which means we have venture capitalists as our guests true so we want to hear from you who you're interested in having on the show and just a reminder when we have vcs on the show we don't interview them typically unless it's a very special occasion but we just talk to them about this week's news there's they're just essentially a third co-host. So that's yep. what we're looking for. Um, we want to know who you guys want, um, which VCs are the most interesting to you. And again, we'd really love to have un- some underrepresented VCs um, on the show. And um, yeah, just uh, feel free to send your suggestions to um, our email, which is equitypod at techcrunch.com. Or you can just uh, reach out to Alex and I directly on Twitter. Yeah. And we want to hear from everyone. So even if your ideas are terrible, send them in. And uh, we appreciate you guys sticking with the show for, I don't know, it's like 130th episode or something crazy like that. It's nuts. And that's all for this week. We'll see you again next week. And thanks for joining us. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet. And we will see you all right here next week. Post money. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a little bit of lead up. Give me, <laughs> give me just something. Wait, like, but pause. Like, wait. It, it, <laughs> you can't just shout it. Wait, just stop. Pause quickly. Because you looked at him like I said something weird. Conjecturing. Conjecturing. Is that what a word? What did I say?
Yeah, it's a word. Oh, oh, yeah, it's a word. Is it? Yeah, it's a word. What? Verb. Conjectured. Conjectured. Conjecturing. All right, so <laughs> I was wrong. I didn't say anything. I deliberately uh, didn't fuck yeah, up the. Yeah, but you. <laughs>